glad that y'all are here. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to invite you at the end of the morning. You may have heard this already. I just want to reiterate and want to welcome you again. I want to invite you to this little table right here on your way out. Uh, there'll be somebody there that can answer your questions at the end. Chances are you can get some questions answered you know, as we dismiss from maybe someone who invited you or someone sitting around you. But that's a good place to get some information about who we are as a church. We've put together a little packet of information about what we believe, uh, some of the activities that are going on at Crosspoint. And there's also a little card in there, a little gift card to uh, Chick-fil-A. So you can't take advantage of that today, but uh, obviously you can certainly do that sometime this week. The, the intent there is to provide for you some time to just have a meal on us to sit and look over the material. Uh, it doesn't compare to walking with the people, though. You can look at all the material in the world, but it's really when you spend time with people that you really find out what they're like, you find out what they're about. So I would encourage you, if you're searching for a church home this morning, and this is your first visit with us, um, I would encourage you to spend a few Sundays with us and um, to consider spending a few Sundays a few places. I mean, I, I think there, the Lord has us in different places for different reasons and different seasons in our lives, and there are some wonderful churches in our community. We're not the best church in Greenville. Okay, hear it from me. There's no such thing. They're all different. They're all different. And we can celebrate that God has a, um, in some ways, a buffet of, of worship options for people in this community. What a, what a, that's a great thing. That's something to celebrate. Each church has a different personality. Each church has a different way about doing things that can all be grounded in the same truth. We can celebrate that this morning. Each week we pray for another church along those lines. And in that vein, we pray for another church in our community. This morning we'll be praying for Southwood Christian Church right down the road. I don't know who the pastor is there and their website is not active. So we can pray for Southwood. We are intensely trying to connect with Southwood and Pecan Grove in a partnership to not only Legends, but also to Major's apartment complex right across the street. So you can be praying with us along those lines that we can make real connections with our neighboring churches in real ministry right across the street. So we're going to pray for Southwood here in a moment. We're also going to pray for the Gond people of India. This people is 14 million strong, less than 1% are Christian. Uh, they're farmers and shepherds. Um, something I read about them is that they uh, sacrifice goats to keep away evil spirits. It's interesting there's a sacrificial element to their version, their understanding of worship. Uh, but they all, it's interesting, the whole village waits around this goat until the goat nods its head. When the goat nods its head, that's when they sacrifice it. Now, okay, now he's ready. And then they believe that the evil spirits are eradicated. So, man, let's pray for this people right now. Let's pray that God would send workers to this far corner. Let's pray that he would draw people among this people group, that he would give them an ache for knowing their creator, that he'd give them an ache at the bankruptcy of sacrificing a nodding goat to tend to their evil spirits. Let's pray. God, what a uh, wonderful privilege we have to gather this morning with your people. Lord, we count this no small thing, although it takes place weekly, we count this an important moment where your people gather around your word, where we sing true things back to you about you, where we enjoy your son and what you've accomplished for us in him. Lord, I pray the gravity of this moment, even though it comes weekly, won't be missed. That we'll see that we are standing in your presence, that you are here with us, that you do profound things to your people when we gather and we're attentive and we're soft-hearted and we're eager and we're ready to receive. Lord, I pray all those things this morning that we will be that people. 
Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for a, a, another church in our community. We want to pray for Southwood Christian just right down the street, Lord. We pray that if they are in transition right now looking for a pastor or if a pastor is there, Lord, that you would bless him, that you would give him your words for your people. Lord, we pray that his family, his marriage would be blessed, that it would be an overflow that, uh, f- that, that overflows out of the pulpit, that overflows in pastoring and shepherding times. Lord, we pray that you would bless Southwood Christian and that along with Pecan Grove and Cross Point, that even just these neighboring churches right here could partner in real meaningful works to folks at their twilight right across the street at Legends and then folks that are just doing life across the street at Majors. Lord, we are praying for real purchase with a partnership with the fellow saints in Greenville doing a great work for your glory. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for the people group, uh, the Gond people of India. Lord, we pray for these, these folks that are putting their hope and trust and faith in a nodding goat. Lord, we pray that you can draw them to place their hope and faith and trust in a sacrifice lamb. Particular and being very particular about the person of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would send workers to this far corner that folks would be just uncomfortable with staying. That they would go to these places and these people groups and that they would share the greatness of Christ in those contexts. It's so great seed in the plots of soil that hopefully you are already cultivating. Lord, that's a massive prayer for a massive people group. And we're thankful that we're bringing it before a massive God. Lord, we are turning these next few minutes over to you and praying that you will speak to us clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psychologist and researcher Michelle Gelfand is at the University of Maryland. She studies retaliation and revenge uh, using a range of research tools, from brain imaging in the lab to field work in the Middle East. In an article in the 2019 Annual Review of Psychology, she and her colleagues explain what revenge research has taught us thus far. The article that I'm about to quote to you is a sort of a series of questions interacting, where an interview is interacting with this researcher, Michelle um, Gelfand. So some of the questions I thought were interesting. What's as interesting as what she brings out is how she reflects on retaliation and revenge as a researcher, given in some ways her life to researching this. Just a few questions. Here's the first question the interviewer asks her. In your review, you write that revenge has not received much attention in the history of intellectual thought. Why do you think this subject has been largely ignored for so long? She said, it's interesting because revenge, which we define as motivated retaliation, after one perceives a harm to one's well-being, is a universal phenomena. That's no surprise to us. It is very common and it takes a serious toll. In the U.S., for example, desire for revenge has been implicated in over 60% of school shootings and over a quarter of bombings. Another question the interviewer asked her says, when revenge is studied, it's often treated as something to be avoided or prevented. Yet you and your co-authors stress that vengeance can be functional and even necessary. Really, is that so? She says, yes, there are a number of different reasons for that. From an individual perspective, revenge has long been thought to be a deterrent, a way to signal to others that one is strong and not to be messed with. Okay, that makes sense. We can, whether we like that or not, we can understand how that might play out. She says in a a community aspect, in in sort of a cultural setting, it helps 
People work together at times when cooperation is essential for group survival. By discouraging the violation of social norms, revenge may help to keep the group together. Okay, so take those thoughts, those sort of positive versions, at least from the, the mind of the researcher here, and then consider this next question to her. If revenge can be useful, would you go as far as recommending it in certain situations? She said, I'm not sure I would recommend it. Isn't that funny? Uh, it made me think about a far side. Um, put that far side cartoon up. I, I, I loved far side when I was a young man, but this is one of my favorites. Donning his new canine decoder, Professor Schwartzman becomes the first human being on earth to hear what barking dogs are actually saying. I don't know if y'all can see it. Hey, 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 hey. That's pretty great. I, maybe I'm the only one that thinks that's funny. I just think that's really funny. Such bad news. You've dedicated your life to studying um, revenge and even the positive, you can turn that off, and even the positive potential there. She says, I'm not sure I would recommend it. A couple other questions that she was asked. Uh, they were asking, uh, what should we be teaching people? How might our research, how might your research help uh, figure out what we might be teaching people? And the first one was that, that, dish should, that revenge is a dish that's best served cold. Okay, you may have heard that saying before, that you should wait when you're feeling you want to exact revenge. You should wait and let it cool off, and then you may or may not even act on it. But here's the second thing. Another thing we might teach is that research shows that personal gain is rare, and feelings of regret may soon set in. Huh. The classic idiom, revenge is sweet, does have some empirical support. Neuroscience research shows that reward centers in the brain are activated when people are just thinking about taking revenge. And people forecast that they're going to be so happy after seeking revenge. But other research shows that this is short-lived and that people are often not as happy as they thought they would be. In that sense, revenge can be thought of as bittersweet, involving positive and negative feelings. It made me consider, made me think about the fact that it's probably a tree that promises a lot and doesn't deliver. You know what I'm talking about? That tree that just has that beautiful fruit on it. You say, this is going to be great. And then you take of it and you go, nope, Satan was lying. It's not as satisfying as I thought it might be. The next question she was asked is the last one that I'll, I'll bring I'll bring out of this article. Do you remember a time when revenge felt very satisfying to you personally? Her response is, luckily, I can't say that I have any particular stories. Doesn't that tell you a lot about this thing that we all naturally feel? When wronged, we all naturally are drawn to this tree and the fruit that it, and the, the delicious promise, but it does not deliver what it promises ever. Let's stand for the reading of God's word and hear what God has, our God the Son has to say about this notion of retaliation and revenge. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray again. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, it is living, it is active, it is sharp, and it penetrates even to the marrow. Lord, speak to us and bring just this 
insight and this equipping that we need so desperately. We're praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last few months. These last few weeks we've been in um, really a series of things that I would sort of summarize as this is what life looks like with Christ in it and on it and through it. These six things that are brought out after the salt and light passage, these six things that uh, Jesus is saying, these are what uh, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees looks like. And he goes into six examples. This morning we are looking at the fifth of those examples. And each of these examples follows uh, a, a similar pattern. Jesus refers to Torah. He refers to Old Testament teaching. And then he brings his explanation of that. And then he provides some practical application. So that's the flow that we're going to follow this morning. It's really the flow of a nice little sermon. Okay, there's Torah that he goes to, an explanation, and then some practical, and I would put in air quotes right now, practical application, because we'll see how that plays out in these next few minutes. So let's deal first with Torah. I'm going to have three passages for you to turn to, and you can go ahead and start uh, getting ready to go there. And I encourage you to look at the scripture this morning. I know y'all usually do, but I really want to encourage looking at the places where I take you this morning because I'm taking you for good reason. I'm teaching a little bit this morning at the beginning of this sermon. Really, I'm teaching probably about 70% of the sermon, and the last 30% is more sermon. Okay, So the teaching is necessary, though, because we're dealing with a passage of Scripture that is so often misunderstood and so often mishandled. So we want to do due diligence. I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see what I believe faithful exegesis looks like, where we consider the context, where we consider the other satellites that might connect to the passage, where we can make sense of it. We're not talking about going crazy in these next few minutes. We're just going to do what I would call a faithful exegesis of this passage so that we will know where we're standing is good footing on this passage, often misunderstood passage. So these passages I want you to have ready are Exodus 21. You can go ahead and kind of have your a bookmark maybe there, Exodus 21. The next one is Leviticus 24. And the third is Deuteronomy 19. Okay, so you can just kind of have those ready. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. The words that we're sort of exploring in these next few minutes are where Jesus refers to old Hebrew law. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So these three references are likely what Jesus has in mind. I, there's, there's, it, it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have one, possibly all of these in mind as he's referring to this statement. So we need to climb into his mind as much as we can to make sense of what he's saying. So let's look at these passages. Beginning in verse, the first one, Exodus 21, beginning in verse 22. Now you can look at the heading the beginning of the chapter, laws about slaves. Okay, here's how the passage unfolds in 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life. Nice little reference there to where God identifies life begins. Okay, that's not what this sermon is about, but we're not going to miss that. God says it begins in the womb. Okay, life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Sounds pretty exhaustive, doesn't it? Bobo for Bobo. I mean, we really have gotten really in there, haven't we? Okay, so let's see what the next passage says. Okay, you can kind of keep those handy. We're not going to explore those in depth, but you can kind of keep the last phrases of each of these passages in mind. Here's the next one. Leviticus chapter 24, beginning in verse 17. The heading right above it says, An eye for an eye in my Bible. I have an ESV. Uh, The heading right above verse 10 says punishment for blasphemy. Okay, keep that in view. Keep that in mind. Okay, because this passage ends picking up that same conversation about the blasphemer or someone who curses God. Okay, so let's see what it says. Beginning of verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture... Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Some of the same language between those two passages, this life for life, fracture for fracture, eye for eye. The reason I want to kind of point out that this case seems to still be dealing with the blasphemer is because at the very end of this passage in verse 23, Moses spoke to the people of Israel. They brought out from the camp the one who had cursed blasphemed God, and stoned him with stones. Okay, this little section here seems to be dealing with the blasphemer. Okay, just kind of keep that in mind. And then let's look at our third passage in Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning in verse 15. Okay, the first one had to do laws, laws in regards to slaves. Slaves are having a little tussle. They bump into a pregnant woman. The baby is born... It's all good. The baby dies, life for life, tooth for tooth, you know, that whole thing. Okay, the second one had to do with punishment for the blasphemer. And this one has to deal with uh, dealing with a false witness, beginning in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person. And this, let me, let me just tell you too, this little passage is a little bit longer. It's not super long. It's just, it goes down verses 15 through 21. But it's so important for where we're going to go in the practical application in a moment. So just really pay attention, especially to this third passage. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently... If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You hear that? You shall do to him as he had meant to do, had, had meant to, do to his brother. You shall purge the evil person from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. There's some similar language between those three passages. I think y'all are you're paying attention enough to know that there's some shared concepts there. And this really goes back to something that has been called the Lex Talionis. Or the Lex Talionis is something that's been drawn from these three passages 
ancient Hebrew teaching, and the Code of Hammurabi, one of the oldest law, laws in, in known existence. Okay? It's, a, it's a, a shared teaching between these two resources. It's called the Lex Talionis, and which means law according to kind. Okay? It's also called the law of retaliation. And it sounds kind of primitive, doesn't it? I mean, you're just imagining like in this place where this sort of law is playing out, that people are going to have their eyes gouged out and their little eyes laying around the floor. There's hands laying around the floor, some feet, people screaming in the background. This sounds like a really primitive environment where this thing's going to play out. Well, I'll just let you know that it's actually not a primitive uh, concept. It's actually something that is um, guiding our judicial system today. Okay, what is really being taught and communicated in these passages is there, it's aimed at preventing disproportionate punishment. It's aimed at limiting excessive punishment. Okay, we need that. You may not realize that. I mean, if you've raised kids, you know that. <laughs> if, you, if you raise kids, you know that if one sibling does something to another, then they're going to respond not in kind, but in Stronger kind, and excessive, and disproportionate kind. And then it's going to be disproportionate back, and before long, everybody's dead. Right? That's the human, that's human nature. We need something that's going to guide us, that's going to say, no, punishment should be in kind and in proportion to the crime. So this could be interpreted, okay, understood correctly, only one eye for one eye. Only one tooth, not a mouthful, for one tooth. Okay, it's a limiting little uh, guide there. It's also a guide against vigilantism. Okay, we read these passages like a bunch of Westerners thinking it's talking to us. Okay, the ancient Hebrews, and even in Jesus' time, would have read them collectively as a people. These guides were given to the people in the nation to execute, not for the individual. It prevents an individual getting even because they were given to the nation as a whole. Okay, so this, um, uh, really I think what, what, I, what, what I, I want to go to Jesus' explanation of this, but I want to just give you a little preparation for this. Jesus is not going to undo this. Okay, he's, he's not going against this. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. So what he's about to do, he's, he's going to explain the spirit of this law and giving us some insight how followers of Christ are to walk this out in a daily way. Okay, so let's go to his explanation and see what we can find. Verse 39 is his very brief explanation back in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Very simple explanation. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, I thought um, pretty much every, every week when I'm preparing for a sermon, I do different things. Uh, some things I do almost every single week. I do word studies. I don't always bring word studies in the pulpit because they could be boring. And, you know, anytime you hear a guy say, well, in the Greek this means, then that's often yawn-inducing. I don't want to do that in these next few minutes. I'm not afraid of doing that on occasions when it's, when it's important and necessary. So I've done a little word study here that I think is important. Just to survey in the New Testament of what it means to resist or do not resist or references to this word specifically, resist. Okay, so here's just a little survey. We're going to just break down Jesus' explanation. Do not resist the one who is evil into two parts. Do not resist, first of all, then the one who is evil, and then we're going to get into the practical application. This is probably the hardest work of the morning, and it's not even really hard. Okay, 
Here's the do not resist part. Here's a little survey. That word resist is used 14 times in the New Testament. Three of them in one verse. Okay, you might think of places where you've heard a word like resist used in the New Testament. You know, so here's an example, Romans 13. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. There's three uses in one verse. Okay, don't resist authorities. God has put them in place. Okay? Another place the word is used, you might think about it in resisting Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Okay, you think about Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor so that you may resist the evil day. Those are some of the places, some of the ways that word is used. Now, a couple other places where I found it used really surprised me. These are occasions where, people, where, where the words was, were used referring to someone who resisted God's message. Okay, now remember, Jesus' charge here is do not resist the evil one. So I just went on a little study here, and I found two examples where Paul uses this word with Timothy, but he beautifully exemplifies, displays what it looks like to not resist the evil one. Okay, so I'll see if I can explain that. Here's the first of these two passages. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a passage that's dealing with godlessness in the end times. The people that are just going to twist things and distort things. And we're in the end times, by the way. You're, this is the last stage before Christ returns. This is, these are the final days. We don't know how many days there are. But we're in the last stage before Christ comes back. So he's speaking about these times. He says, for among them, these people that twist the truth, are those who creep into households and capture weak-willed women. Okay, they burden them with sins. Are the, one, the women that are burdened with sins, they lead them astray with, by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So listen to this phrase. So these men, these guys who twist the truth, also oppose, here's the word, resist the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Okay, he's using the word here not in the way that Christ did. Okay, he, Christ said, do not resist the evil one. He's using an occasion where someone resists the teacher and preacher of the word. Here in this case, he's talking about himself as Paul. And he's speaking to Timothy as another herald of the truth. And he's saying, he's referring to some guys who will resist the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding to the faith. And look, look what he says next. But they will not get very far. He says, their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Ironically, I'm going on a word study trying to find examples where we're not to resist the evil one. I found an occasion where someone resists the truth, and the way Paul responds is to not resist this guy, <laughs> to not resist these men. Instead of resisting, he says, you know what? They're not going to get very far. Their folly is going to be plain to all, as was that of Janus and Jambres. They resist the truth, but they won't get far. Their folly will be plain to all. Therefore, don't resist the evil one. A beautiful application of it. Here's another one in 2 Timothy chapter 4, just the next chapter. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You know why he can say that? It's because he's not resisting the evil one. 
He's not resisting, in this case, Alexander the coppersmith. He says, beware of him yourself, for he strongly resisted our message. That's what led me there, that word resist. Ironically, he resisted the message, but the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So don't resist him. The Lord is the one that deals with vengeance. The Lord is the one that deals with reconciling accounts like that. That's his job not mine, as Paul is saying, and not yours, as he's speaking to Timothy. And I think he's encouraging us through this passage this morning to not take that on ourselves either. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, we can try and figure out. Let's deal with this second part of this. We've got to capture the resist portion. Now, let's deal with the one who is evil. These three references I gave you over there in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, I think can give us some concept or insight into who the evil one might be. In the first case, we're talking about slaves that are just wrestling and they bump into a pregnant woman. Ah, It's hard to really call that an evil person that's wrestling. I mean, I wrestle with my brothers. I might wrestle with y'all if you wanted to, just for fun, just see who wins. Some people I'm not. Joseph, I'm looking at you. I'm not going to wrestle with you. You're too big. But wrestling in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, you know? I mean, but bumping into a pregnant woman and she loses her baby, that's tragic. I mean, we can agree. It's hard to imagine wrestlers as the evil one that he's referring to, okay? Wrestling doesn't seem that harmful. The next one, though, the Leviticus 24 passage referred to the blasphemer, the one who curses God. Now we might be getting somewhere. We go, okay, that sounds like the evil one. Maybe that's the one he's speaking of here, or maybe he's including that as one that we should not resist, one who curses God. So we can sort of gather those up. Maybe someone who does bodily harm. Maybe someone who curses God. And remember that third reference that I spent a little bit more time on was in Deuteronomy 19. Okay, the malicious witness. Someone who bears false witness. It seems as if maybe I'm going to put my money, if I were betting on where Jesus is primarily uh, thinking, I'm going to have to say it's probably this third, third one because of where it goes next in the practical application immediately in the turning the other cheek passage, which I'm about to show you. But I want you to just gather up these, these three possibilities. Someone who causes bodily harm. We're trying to make sense of who the evil one is. Someone who curses God. Someone who bears false witness. These evil ones are the any ones of the passages I'm about to read. Okay, the practical application passages. Okay, so let's look at those together. All right? Verse 39, the second half of verse 39 through verse 42 of Matthew chapter 5. This is where things get real practical. Remember I used the air quotes? Okay, we had the Torah. We had the explanation. It's brief, but it has some layers. Do not resist the evil one. Okay? And then we're getting into the practical application. Okay, this is where Jesus lands the plane in the sermon. Okay? But if anyone slaps you, there's an anyone. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus gives four examples of righteous non-retaliation. Four really easy examples, right? Right? I mean, four really, I mean, these are lobs. That's why I put practical in air quotes. So let's just take a moment and deal with these four. 
We're going to deal with these four in context. This first one, I think, in context really is, is probably of the four, the one that's most often misunderstood, referring to turning the other cheek. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Most of the people in, in Jesus' time were right-handed. Okay, that's probably true today as well. I know there's some lefties in here. But most people were right-handed. So the concept there is if you're going to slap someone in their right cheek, the only way to go about that, if you're thinking about geography, geometry, anatomy, whatever else you need to think of, you know, where people are facing one another in opposition, the only way for somebody right-handed to slap somebody on their right cheek is to backhand them. Okay, what we're talking about here is a backhand. And a backhand was so profoundly insulting that ancient rabbis actually charged a double fine against the backhander. I mean, isn't it? You can imagine how insulting. It would also be more injurious. You're talking about knuckles. You're talking about bones right up against somebody's face. You're not talking about the meat of your hand. But even beyond the injury, we're talking about an insult, a severe and profound insult. And it seems as if Jesus' teaching is focused more on the insulting nature of the face slap than physical harm. It seems as if he's speaking of the insulting nature of the face slap, the backhanded face slap, than actual physical harm. Notice that he didn't say, if someone stabs you in the left arm, let him stab you in the right. If someone shoots you in the left arm, they didn't have guns. Let him shoot you in the right. The concept is there. He's speaking of what appears to be primarily insult. A person should, in fact, defend him or herself in the face of life-threatening or dangerous attack if they can. I'm going to say that again. I want to say it very plainly and very clearly. A person should defend him or herself in the face of life-threatening or dangerous attack if they can. Remember, Jesus' command prohibits attacks or acts of retaliation or revenge. That's what this passage is about, to not retaliate or exact revenge. It's not about how to go about defensive or evasive action. In John chapter 18, when Jesus was slapped in the face, he protested the injustice of it. Okay, you know the rest of the story. Later on, he's like a sheep before shears, but at this point... He's protesting the injustice of it. And in other occasions, he defended himself verbally and even withdrew from situations that would have meant bodily harm for him because it wasn't time for his cross yet. Where he disappears through a crowd that's about to throw him off a cliff. He evades danger in certain circumstances. This passage, it seems, is speaking more to the insult than the injury. So here's the gem. Okay, there's going to be a gem, G-E-M, for each of these. Okay, I've got to remember how to spell gem, J-E-M. Here's the gem. I did it wrong. G-E-M, excuse me. All right, here's the gem. It's hard. Okay, let me regroup. I need some coffee. Okay, here's the gem. When, not if you're insulted. When, turn the other cheek. The beauty of turning the other cheek would have meant de-escalation. The most insulting slap is the backhand. Somebody insults you with the backhand slap, turning the other cheek is to de-escalate it for them and for you. 
It's a nice little visual of a soft answer turns away wrath. Do the thing that you wouldn't do naturally. And you can couple it with some of the thoughts that we heard from, from Paul just a moment ago. Know that they will not get very far. Know that their folly will be made plain to all. And know that the Lord will repay them for their deeds. I heard a quote this week that I've been, that's been playing over and over in my head just because it was just so good. The best way to defend yourself against an insult is have a great life. The best defense against an insult is to just have a great life. In room full of brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to know that we already have the greatest life ever in Christ. <laughs> We're living the scandal of eternal life in Christ. Someone insults you, man, big deal. Big deal. Offer up the other cheek and let it de-escalate and enjoy the great laugh, the great life that we have. Okay, here's the second example. Giving one's tunic and cloak. This has to do with a Christ follower's response to a personal lawsuit. Okay, I want to clarify here. We're talking personal lawsuit. Someone goes after you for some legal reason. The shirt or the tunic was the inner garment that was commonly payment in a lawsuit. Okay, that sounds kind of weird. But actually the shirt or the inner garment, they, they were sometimes short sleeve, they were sometimes long sleeve, but they went down to the ankles and they were made out of wool or linen and they actually had a value. And people in lawsuits, often occasions, would have to pay with their tunic as the payment. I, as, a, as a germ guy, that just sounds like the worst cootie situation in the world. But, but apparently it was common back then. So you're in a lawsuit, and the, the outcome is, oh, they're, they're going to take your, your shirt. Well, the coat, actually, you got the shirt as the inner garment, your, your Hanes, you know, kind of their version of the Hanes. Um, the, the outer garment, okay, is the coat, and that was an inalienable garment. They couldn't take that in any lawsuit because I guess they didn't want people to walk around naked. It makes a lot of sense, right? Your outer garment was, was not fair game. And Jesus is saying, if someone in a lawsuit comes and they take your tunic, pay the, pay the extra amount. Go beyond what's expected. So here's the gem. Jesus is saying to his followers, make amends with an opponent by paying more than the court requires. Even to the point of yielding what the law protected. You know, so each of these occasions, I've just mentioned two of them. We're going to look at the last two briefly. Each of these require what, what a, a few of my books referred, uh, that I appreciate the way they, they, they uh, term this, localized wisdom. Localized wisdom it means you're in your context, you're in your circumstances, you're in your situation where you should be asking like the bracelet people used to wear years ago, WWJD, remember those bracelets? What would Jesus do? That's a great bracelet. It's a great thing to keep up here. We don't need it on a bracelet. What would Jesus do in those circumstances? And that's going to be localized wisdom that's going to give you some insight how to walk those things out. Here's the third thing, going the extra mile. Roman authorities often subjugated Jews to perform menial tasks. A great example was Simon of Cyrene, who was recruited to carry the cross down the Via Dolorosa for Jesus. I think it was a Roman guard told him to do that. Uh, they, they were the, the mile in ancient times was a Latin term meaning a thousand paces. And there were only certain distances that could be prescribed for these conscripts. Okay? Certain boundaries were placed on how much or what distance someone could carry. 
walking the distance, suggested they were carrying something like something heavy. If a Roman soldier is not wanting to carry it for a certain distance, and a Jew will do, then we're going to put something heavy on your back, and you're going to carry my stuff for me. Okay, that's the concept here. So here's the gem, G-E-M. Jesus is commanding his disciples to exceed the distance commanded. And then here is, this is just so good. I, had, I ripped it off. I totally ripped it off. I can't remember where I, I read it, but it's just so good. Carry the load out of obligation for the first mile. Carry the, out of compassion for the second mile. Isn't that good? Carry the load out of obligation for the first mile. Carry the load out of compassion for the second mile. And here's the last one. Give to the one who asks. This is a hard one, right? You ever go to Walmart? You go downtown, person that talks to you and stops you in the parking lot or stops you by your car or stops you on the street. And you're wondering, what am I supposed to do in this case? Am I supposed to do, is this, am I supposed to give money in these circumstances? Here's, here's a nice way to handle that. Give to the one who asks. This in Jesus' time would have been someone who had a real need. Okay, Jews in Jesus' time would rather uh, face death than beg. We're talking about real beggars with real needs. We're not talking about freeloaders. We're talking about real beggars with real needs. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament require financial support for the slothful, lazy, or those who waste their money. Paul, in fact, rebuked those who expected to live on the church's charity without working. We're not talking about freeloaders here. We're talking about people with real need. So here's the gem, G-E-M. If someone has a real need and you're able to help them, help them. Let's keep it really simple. If you're able to help them and they have a real need, just help them. If someone needs money, lend it to them. Man, let's not complicate it. All right, so what are we supposed to do with all this? What are you supposed to do with these practical applications? Practical, air quotes. What are we supposed to do with these gems? Because they're easy to say, right? They're easy to write down in our notes, but they're harder to actually do. Turn the other cheek. I mean, really think about it. Turn the other cheek. Well, who really does that? I mean, really turn the other cheek when they're insulted and says, okay, well, let me offer up another occasion for you to insult me again. Who actually in a lawsuit would give up their tunic and their coat? Would pay the extra, extra than, and more than what the court required? Who actually would exceed the distance commanded and who actually would help those who actually have real needs anytime and every time they asked? Well, we do. We do. Who does that? We do. God's people do this. This right here is what it means to be salty, bright, and aromatic. Okay, you can be cheery at work. You can pray over your lunch. Man, those are all great things. You can be, have a helpful, encouraging word for people at, in the office or at home. You can be just a real positive person. Those are all great. But this is where the salt comes from. This is where the brightness comes from in these circumstances that are often excruciating. Insult? Insult slapped across the face, backhanded? Man, these situations are Excruciating. This is, what, this is what it means to be a good neighbor right here. This is what it means to love our neighbors. 
This is what it means to be salty, bright, and aromatic, people of God. Who does, who does these crazy things? Well, we do. We do. Because of who we are walking in and who we are enjoying. And this song that, I've been, that, that has been playing in my head all week long, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. You know the song, we sing it from time to time. It is no longer I, it is Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. Man, that's not just something we just want to say. Because the reality is these things, there's no possibility these things will play out in our life if we're not dying in those occasions and Christ is living. That's the only way they're going to play out. These are occasions, these are occasions where you're insulted. These are occasions where you're sued. These are occasions where some harm is done to you, some injustice. And you respond the way Christ would. Those are occasions where you die and Christ lives. You understand both can't happen. Or you can't live and Christ live also. There's not room for both of you in there. You understand that? There's not room for both of you in there. If you want Christ to reign and rule and be evident, then you have to die. And you die through these very specific and excruciating circumstances. But what a great opportunity to put him on display. These are great opportunities, we can put air quotes around them, where we die and he lives. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this window into your word. We are thankful for this window into what it means to follow Christ. We are thankful in this window into what it means to be a good neighbor. What it means to love our neighbor. Or I'm thankful for this view into what it means to be a citizen of this invisible eternal kingdom. Lord, the things that we've talked about this morning are impossibilities apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They're impossibilities apart from us dying in these circumstances and Christ living in and through us. So, Lord, we ask you not to spare us of these hard circumstances, but to use them so that Christ may live in and through us. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. We're thankful that you do great things through hard circumstances. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen.